So glad that you're here. My name is Kyle, and this is Uplift. Uh, you know this by now, but we stream uh, this message on Sunday mornings for our online Bible class called The Conversation. So if you're watching Sunday morning, I'm glad that you're here. By the way, The Conversation, if you put all of our views together, is actually our largest attended Bible class on Sunday morning. So there's a lot of worth in what we're doing here. You're here, and it extends to other people. So, so glad if you're joining us, log into the chat and say hi. We are in a five-week series. This is week four of this series called A Fresh Perspective. We're taking a look at the book of Philippians over the course of five weeks, riding some of this uh, new year momentum, reading about a letter from a guy who was in jail when he wrote it. What is it like to have perspective when you're in jail? It's one thing for us to think about newness and new momentum and fresh beginnings, but I thought it would be really good for us to take a look at at how Paul saw these things, especially writing on the other side of uh, a, a cell door. So we are in uh, this series. We'll wrap it up next week. And a new series is going to start in a couple of weeks. I'm pretty excited about it. It's called Crash Course. And we're going to be taking a look. It's a four-week series at some of the big ideas in Christian thought and apologetics in the very first week. This is two weeks. We're going to tackle the big words. And the first word we're going to look at is the word of sanctification. What does that mean? How do we explain that? How do we define that, defend that? So kind of excited about the next series here. It's a couple of weeks called Crash Course. Let's start this message by reading a statement about God from Romans chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn here physically or on your phone on a version app. We're going to have it on the screen. Romans chapter 4. Listen to this. Verse 10. It's going to, or sorry, verse 16. It's going to feel like you kind of popped into the middle of a conversation. I'll explain that in a minute. Paul wrote, That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. He's talking about Abraham, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, this statement again, statement about Abraham. If you want to read the context, you can pull up all of Romans 4. It's incredible about Abraham, but that's not why I wanted to draw your attention to it here. I wanted to read it specifically to draw our attention to the statement about God made right here. And it's this, that God calls things into existence that do not exist, that God calls things into existence that do not exist. I got a couple of words for you here that there's a theological term for this. It's called ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. Now that's a Latin phrase. I don't know if you've heard of this before. It's fine if you haven't or if you had. This Latin phrase means out of nothing, out of nothing. In other words, God doesn't use a set of ingredients when he creates. He just creates. And he creates out of nothing. So what we're going to do is we're going to get a little esoterical for the next few minutes. And if I do my job right, you're going to be so impressed with how much I know. (laughs) We're going to talk about nothing. We're going to talk about nothing. You might be surprised to learn that we really theoretically can't understand nothingness. Now, we define nothing as the absence of something. So you might have heard it quite like this. We go and we look in our refrigerator for something, and we say that it's empty because it has nothing inside of it. It's nothing. Or we we lose our keys. We can't find our keys. The last time we've seen them, they were on the kitchen table. 
So we go to the kitchen table, find it empty, and we say what? There's nothing on the kitchen table, nothing there. Or if you are a uh, TV junkie, you know that the sitcom Seinfeld, the two main characters of that sitcom, Jerry and George, write a television show about nothing. And for them, nothing was the absence of plot. So really, this is kind of our general view of nothing. So what I want to do for the next couple of minutes is I just kind of want to enlighten us on this very, very serious subject about nothing. So let's do a little science lesson. All of creation, everything that exists, is a collection of atoms, A-T-O-M-S. From here all the way to the edge of the universe, everything is a collection of atoms. So scientists and chemists and physicists and the like would say that nothing really doesn't exist since everything is made up of something, except, some scientists claim, the, the space between the atoms. I want to show you a picture. Check this out. This is a cool picture, by the way. This is the clearest picture of atoms ever captured. It was taken in 2021. It used a zoom of 100 million times. Now, these are the atoms that are found in a crystal. Now, on the image, the atoms are orange, and the space between the atoms are black. Now, all these together, a collection of atoms put together, are called, it's called molecules. Okay, so this is actually a, a, a kind of a cross-section of a molecule. And to atomic scientists, the black space here is really our clearest idea of nothing because nothing exists in that black space. There, there are no atoms there. There's no matter. But this is kind of where it gets a little tricky because could something exist in the black space between the atoms? That space actually has a name. It's called intermolecular space because as atoms form molecules, the space between the atoms in a molecular pattern still functions to help comprise the molecule. So, and here's the head scratcher, right? Told you you're going to be incredibly impressed. Does nothing exist if nothing is a part of something? I got you there, didn't I? I'm impressing you. You're impressed. I can tell. I'm going to sound a lot more clever than I really am, but you see the problem, right? I mean, or problems, because there's actually more problems when you talk about nothing. Because you might just be tempted to agree that the space between the atoms is nothing because there's no matter there. Or if you're really clever, you're probably thinking this, that a vacuum is nothing because there's no matter in a vacuum. But you'd be wrong if you said that. And I'm not going to attempt to explain why, but if you want to know, you can Google these three words, quantum field theory. I have no idea what that is. But if you thought the space between the atoms was nothing, because I think a lot of people kind of think that, then the famous fourth century Greek philosopher Aristotle might disagree with you. Because he argued that space, which is our idea of nothing, right? An empty refrigerator, an undecorated table, or the emptiness between atoms. Aristotle said that that space is really a receptacle for matter. It's a place where you put stuff. It's a place where stuff can go. So even what we think is nothing is really something. Philosophers can't agree on what nothing is, and that kind of proves the point here, that we really can't understand 
the idea of nothing. So back to this statement from Paul in Romans chapter 4. It's pretty heavy. It actually means something. I mean, God creates things from nothing, from a physical state of being that we can't even define. It's a concept we can't even understand. So all of creation, rocks and trees and stars and planets and jellyfish and reindeer and people, all of creation has no template, has no mold, it has no ingredients. There was nothing. And then because of God, there was something. There was us, there was me and you. And you know what? A little digression here, but it's that power of creation. It's that power of transformation that makes the case for the existence of God so compelling, right? I mean, there's no unilateral way to prove how creation came to be other than God calling things into existence that didn't exist before. That's pretty compelling. And I want you to listen, because God alone possesses creation power, he's also the only one who possesses transformational power. The one who formed you can reform you. He can transform you. And God, the one who calls things into existence that did not previously exist, has actually specified how to transform me, how to transform you. And it's something Paul called righteousness. It's a really big word. And righteousness is the act of making things right, implying, obviously, that whatever God does is right. Scripture attests to this. Let me show you a couple. The first is in Genesis chapter 18. Look at this. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Of course he will, because that's all he does. Paul wrote about it in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at this. Paul wrote, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, here's this term again, the righteous judge will award to me on that day. God is a righteous judge. Everything he does, everything he decides is right. So that means that God's action from calling things into existence that didn't exist, or his action to crucifixion and the resurrection, they're all right. They're all right. If God does it, if he creates it, if he makes it, if he oversees it, if he authorizes it, it can't be wrong because God doesn't do wrong. His actions are righteous. He is righteousness incarnate in Jesus. And listen, this righteousness of God is a righteousness that does not exist here in our world. It has no template. It has no ingredients. It's not something that exists. We can't create it on our own. All of creation exists because God creates it, even righteousness. Now, with that in mind, let's go to Philippians chapter 3. And let's read the word of Paul about God's righteousness. It's in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 8. Think of what Paul wrote. Indeed, I remember he writes this from a jail cell, right? Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having 
a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him. What an amazing statement. I think Paul would know Jesus by this time. That I may know him. He still wants to know him. In the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now I want to zero in on verse 9. We're going to be back and forth here. Let's look at this again. The end of verse 8 and verse 9. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now look at the, the righteousness. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You got to notice the language here. It's important. Paul's very specific. It's not the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness from God. If you can underline that in your Bibles, I did it in mine. You need to underline that word from. It's not the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness from God. It's a righteousness given. It's a righteousness that doesn't exist here. It, it, it can't is, exist here. It's a righteousness that Martin Luther called alien. That's the title of this message, an alien righteousness. He called it that in a sermon that he preached on Palm Sunday in 1519. God calls righteousness into existence where it does not exist. Now, I'm going to read parts of this sermon to you. Martin Luther preached this over 500 years ago. Listen to this. I think we've got the quote on the screens. Therefore, Martin Luther wrote, preached, by the way, this alien righteousness instilled in us without our works by grace alone, while the Father, to be sure, inwardly draws us to Christ, is set opposite original sin, which is likewise alien, which we acquire without our works by birth alone and more in accordance with the extent to which faith and knowledge of Christ grow. Christ daily drives out the old Adam more and more in accordance with the extent to which faith and knowledge of Christ grow. For alien righteousness is not instilled all at once, but it begins, it makes progress, and it is finally perfected at the end through death. If you want to read this whole sermon, it's called The Two Righteousnesses. You can Google it. It's, it's uh, free on Google somewhere. I've got a copy in my office. This alien righteousness that God calls into existence in our world, it's pretty powerful. Again, it doesn't exist here. God calls it into existence. It's from him. And it has four succinct qualities that shape us, all listed right here in Philippians. Now, we're going to break these up into twos, all right? The first two of these qualities are what righteousness from God, this alien righteousness does to us. And the last two is what this alien righteousness does through us. So to us and through us. So let's start. Four things. Here's the first two. The righteousness from God does two things to us. Here's the first one. It disregards self-righteousness. It disregards self-righteousness. Now I told you we're going to be in verse 9. Let's read it again. 
Paul's statement here. He wanted to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. All this language about not having a righteousness from my own, that's of my own, that's, that's big. That's big because Paul, right here in this one little sentence, strikes to the heart of a virus that still plagues us. And it's this virus of self-righteousness, of having a righteousness of our own, of depending on our moral capabilities. And look, this self-righteousness, like any viruses, it has various strains. I got three of them. I'm going to show you. We're going to hit them real quick. There's a bunch more. Let's look at them. Here they are, three of them, the, the, the religious strain, the political strain, and the financial strain. Now look, if you want to know, here's what these are, right? So the religious strain of self-righteousness is this. It elevates your opinion of your piety. Makes you think that you're great. You think you're inherently good because you are good. You got a good life. You're a good person. You help people, right? If you go to the grocery store, you let people cut in front of you if they've got less than you. Man, we're, we're good people. Your relationships are solid. I'm a good person. And so because of that, you start to think that God likes me because I'm good. Thus, he helps me be better. See, that's, that's one strain of this virus of self-righteousness. Here's another. It's the political strain. This, this strain of self-righteousness, it elevates our opinion of politics. It brings that up. It thinks, it helps us, it tempts us to think that we're inherently good because our version of politics is what could save things. It could be better if people would just listen to me. If people voted like me, everything would be so much better. That America would be better. The nations would be better. But all the while it ignores what John writes in Revelation 21, that nations only get better at the end of time. And here's the third strain. It's the financial strain of this virus, right? This strain of self-righteousness pits our investments and our career prowess and and, and, our, and, our, and, our, and our money and our bank accounts at the forefront. And it tempts us to think that we're inherently good because we've been able to amass some sort of wealth. I mean, we are good, right? We got money, we got to be a good person. And we're a good person because we have money, have a good pedigree. You think you've been fortunate or lucky to be in the right place at the right time and you've capitalized on these positionings. And look, we can go on and on and on and on. There's a ton of them, right? But the alien righteousness, the righteousness from God is the vaccine that kills those strains. We have no righteousness of our own. It doesn't exist in this world. The alien righteousness, this righteousness from God disregards our, our idea of self-righteousness. It overrides it. It kills it. Because only God is righteous and we can do nothing to earn his favor. That's the first thing it does. Here's the second thing that it does to us. It values our self-worth. Now, this is a tricky statement here. It values our self-worth. Here's what I mean. The righteousness from God elevates how we've been created. We are created in the image of God. It elevates that. And it relaxes in us the need to prove ourselves. We're created in God's image. And that is more than enough. Let's look at verse 9 again. I told you we're going to be here. For his sake, Paul wrote, I suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
everything that he had ever done, he considered garbage. Everything. I can't imagine that. All the struggles and things I've been through, all of the the, the job situations and the education and the diploma. I, I can't imagine thinking that, that it's worthless because I've put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into those things. That's where Paul is. Everything I've done, it doesn't matter. In fact, he's in jail and he's saying, what else do I have to prove? I've done it all. I've done it all. His pedigree, which he previously mentions in chapter three, his achievements did nothing to prevent his incarceration. He's still in jail. But he says that he's gained Christ in spite of losing everything else that he had ever gained. Nothing of value was found in him because of what he accomplished. I want to read to you a quote by commentator and scholar Daniel Migliori, who wrote a commentary on Philippians. It's a paragraph. Let me read it to you. This is what he says about this. The dignity of countless human beings is often under attack because of their race, ethnicity, gender, personal history, or social position. Against such assaults is not only the biblical declaration that we're all created in the image of God, but also the Pauline doctrine of the righteousness from God. Assurance of the inalienable truth of our human worth and dignity comes not from any value society may grant to us or from the value we may assign to ourselves, but from the forgiving love and astonishing mercy of God in Christ. This is a message our world needs to hear. And if that didn't make any sense to you, let me say it to you another way. This by songwriter Charlotte Elliott. Show you her lyrics. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, and waiting not, can't wait, she can't wait when she writes this, to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot. Oh, Lamb of God, I come just as I am, just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, and relieve, because thy promise I believe. Oh, Lamb of God, I come. This righteousness from God, it values us because we are lost image bearers. God restores to us the title with which we were born. You matter solely because you were created. And that's what the righteousness from God does to us. But it also does two things through us. We're going to hit these pretty quick. First thing it does is that it forms through us a new community. Now we're going to back up a little bit in Philippians chapter 3. It forms in us a new community. I want to read a statement in verse 3 of chapter 3 that Paul wrote. If you have your Bibles open, you can see it. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He identifies himself and the Philippians three ways. The circumcision, the way by the, who they worship, and where they place their confidence or where it's not placed. Now I want you to notice in that statement a little pronoun. It's the pronoun we. 
little pronoun was written by a Jewish man in jail to a non-Jewish audience. That's the pronoun of community. And he's realizing that this community of two ethnicities, at least from his perspective, it was a community of people brought together, disparate people, people of different backgrounds by the righteousness from God. Paul was witnessing a brand new social reality created by God. You got to remember Paul's personal story here. He wrote it in, in chapter three. He performed rightly as a Jewish man. He was the pinnacle of all Jewish men, but his self-righteousness was based on a system of exclusivity. Not everybody was welcomed in his world until Christ found him, until Christ found the Philippians. Again, it's what Paul wrote in verse nine. We're going to show it again. Look at the very first phrase, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faith in Christ. That's the first thing it does. It forms a new community. And here's the second thing it does through us. It forms through us a new mission, a new mission. This new life, you got to listen to this. It's written from a guy in jail, right? This new life, this new community, it's born into contention. I mean, Paul's in jail because of his faith in Jesus, because he's part of this community. But our mission, like Paul's, like the Philippians, is to introduce this righteousness to unbelievers. And this is the ultimate power move in humility. It's the way of Jesus in the world. And we are without option to consider any other way to operate, even if we are oppressed. But it's not the way of violence. It's the way of reconciliation as image bearers, we know that what we have received is a gift that we can't keep to us. We can't keep to ourselves. Now we're tempted here to say, and to to think about great mission experiences, right? You want to think that because that when we do that, we think that that's something for other people to do. Everybody needs to go somewhere else. And we see it on the macro. We're tempted to see it on the macro level, but I want you to see the micro view. Right? I want us to zero in a little bit. And I want you to watch. Let's kind of pull back from these great big trips and kind of come, come down to, to us and watch how the righteousness of God affects those through you in your immediate circle. For those of us who are married, doesn't this righteousness need a chance to grow in your marriage? Isn't it just right to let this righteousness flow through you to your spouse and to your children? What about your coworkers or your colleagues or your neighbors? I mean, the micro view is is not casting this vision so someone else can go. It's what does it do through me? Knowing that no one really deserves this righteousness, it creates a community of people who are forgiven and who are ready to offer the same. This alien righteousness is not something that exists here. You're not going to find this anywhere. You're not going to find it. People don't treat each other this way. It doesn't exist, but God created it out of nothing right here. And I want to ask us to let it move in us. Let it change us. It changed Paul. It can. It can change you.